Welcome to Season 3 of Come Follow Me Deep Dive, Doctrine and Covenants Edition. This podcast takes a section-by-section approach to the scriptures that are assigned to the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and you can visit my website, barryhillam.com, to make contact and find new content. I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks from many reliable sources, a short flyover summary of the Doctrine and Covenants section in question, followed by a complete verse-by-verse reading of the text that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of Scripture, trusted scholars, and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Doctrine and Covenants, Section 6. The Otten and Caldwell title for this section is What Greater Witness Can You Have Than From God? Oliver Cowdery. This revelation was given in April of 1829 in Harmony, Pennsylvania. It was given through Joseph Smith and directed to Oliver Cowdery. So the historical background for this section will give us a formal introduction to Oliver Cowdery. Unlike the previous section, Doctrine and Covenants section 5, where Martin Harris, even though he was named three times in that section, was never addressed directly, uh, the Lord does speak directly to Oliver here in section 6. He'll even say, Thou art Oliver, in verse 20. Then towards the end of this section, we'll discover that the Lord will speak to both Oliver and Joseph at the same time. Uh, In verse 33, for example, where he says, Fear not to do good, my sons. So again, this revelation is given through Joseph Smith and directed to Oliver Cowdery, but the end of the section, again, shows us that both parties are being addressed by the Lord. Susan Easton Black has written that the wording in the section headings of the Doctrine and Covenants takes on added significance when a distinction is made between the phrases revelation given through Joseph Smith and revelation given to Joseph Smith the prophet and so and so, meaning in conjunction with another person. So that's the first time that this is happening in the Doctrine and Covenants here in section 6. The Doctrine and Covenants records three individuals who were privileged to receive revelations with Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, and David Whitmer. Of these three men, Oliver was the first to receive revelations with Joseph. Over a seven-year period, uh, spanning between 1829 and 1836, Oliver received at least seven revelations in conjunction with the prophet. That would be Doctrine and Covenants section 6, 7, 13, 18, 24, 26, and 110. And, of course, other revelations not contained in the Doctrine and Covenants. Of these... Two revelations were received through the Urim and Thummim, and that's Doctrine and Covenants section 6 and 7, three by the revelatory process of mind and heart, that applies to sections 18, 24, and 26, and two as visions in which ancient prophets restored priesthood keys, and that is in sections 13 and 110. Coming back to Oliver Cowdery and his role in the receipt of the Doctrine and Covenants revelations, Susan Black has written this, More than 22% of the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants are linked in one way or another to Oliver Cowdery. Except for Joseph Smith, no other person is mentioned more often in the Doctrine and Covenants than Oliver. Either his name appears or he is specifically addressed in 30 sections. 
In at least six sections, his name is linked with Joseph Smith as having received a revelation with him. That's true in sections 6, 7, 13, 18, 24, and 110. Three entire sections were received by Joseph specifically for or in behalf of Oliver. That's true of sections 8, 9, and 28. Two sections recount Joseph and Oliver receiving priesthood keys from holy messengers. That's sections 13 and 110. Nineteen sections mention Oliver's name in conjunction with a specific assignment. Finally, one section is attributed to Oliver as the author, and that is true in Doctrine and Covenants section 134. Reviewing the place of Oliver Cowdery in the Doctrine and Covenants reveals the sacred role of a man called by God to do a marvelous work among the children of men. That role included being the principal scribe of the Book of Mormon translation, first preacher of the restored church, second elder, apostle, and associate president of the church. So as we can see, Oliver Cowdery is a major character in the play of the Restoration. We'll have a lot more to say about Oliver in just a moment. First of all, let me read the section heading to this section before we move any further. It says, Revelation given to Joseph Smith the prophet and Oliver Cowdery at Harmony, Pennsylvania in April of 1829. Oliver Cowdery began his labors as scribe in the translation of the Book of Mormon on April 7th of 1829. He had already received a divine manifestation of the truth of the prophet's testimony respecting the plates on which was engraved the Book of Mormon record. The prophet inquired of the Lord through the Urim and Thummim and received this response. Well, as we can guess then, the cast of characters in this section, Doctrine and Covenants section 6, is Joseph Smith Jr. and Oliver Cowdery. So let's now read an essay uh, from people associated with the Doctrine and Covenants, biographical facts and early images of individuals associated with the revelations. And this can be found in the Doctrine and Covenants study guide on the church website. So this is a great introductory essay detailing the life of Oliver Cowdery and providing us with a formal introduction to him now as we move into the historical background of Section 6. Born in Vermont in 1806, Oliver Cowdery was the eighth and final child of William and Rebecca Fuller Cowdery. He grew up in a religious family that endured many hardships during his early life, such as crop failures and several moves. Before Cowdery's third birthday, his mother passed away of tuberculosis, the same illness that would eventually claim his life. Records indicate Cowdery lived with relatives for long periods as a young man, probably for economic reasons. As a youth, he attended school, studying the Bible and acquiring skills in writing and language that would serve him in later life. In 1828, when Oliver Cowdery was in his early 20s, he moved to western New York, where he was offered a position as a school teacher near Palmyra. There he heard rumors about Joseph Smith and the gold plates. Joseph Smith's earliest written history records that the Lord appeared to Cowdery and shewed unto him the plates in a vision and also the truth of the work. After boarding for a short time with Joseph Smith's parents in Manchester, he determined to travel to Harmony, Pennsylvania, to meet Joseph in person. Almost immediately after his arrival, Cowdery began working as Joseph's scribe on the translation of the Book of Mormon. Cowdery received priesthood authority from angelic ministers, was one of three witnesses of the Book of Mormon plates, helped supervise the publication of the Book of Mormon, and was a founding member of the church on April 6th of 1830. Of his involvement in these miraculous events, Cowdery later wrote, I shall ever look upon this expression of the Savior's goodness with wonder and thanksgiving while I am permitted to tarry. 
1830, Cowdery led a group of four missionaries to American Indian settlements on what was then the western border of the United States. They passed through Ohio, where their preaching led to a surge of conversions that helped establish Kirtland as a center of the church. Two years later, Cowdery married Elizabeth Ann Whitmer. The couple had six children, but only a daughter, Maria Louise, lived past early childhood. Elizabeth and Maria Louise died two days apart in 1892 and were buried together. Oliver Cowdery had no other descendants. During the church's early years, Cowdery served prominently as the second elder, the assistant president of the church, and an assistant counselor to the first presidency. He also played a key role in preparing Joseph Smith's revelations for publication in the Book of Commandments, and later the Doctrine and Covenants. With Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, Cowdery opened the doors to the House of the Lord in Kirtland in 1836 and welcomed Latter-day Saints to the dedicatory session. He presided over the proceedings as one of the presidents of the high priesthood and witnessed the appearance of Jesus Christ and angelic ministers in the temple a week after the dedication. A year later, economic troubles in Kirtland, including the failure of the Kirtland Safety Society Bank, dealt a crushing blow to Oliver Cowdery's finances, and he reacted by pursuing his own enterprise rather than continuing to consecrate his property to the church. Cowdery further challenged church leaders by accusing them of mismanaging funds and by spreading rumors that Joseph Smith had committed adultery. In 1838, Joseph called on the High Council to investigate Cowdery's allegations. The council eventually convened and considered several charges against Cowdery, ultimately voting to uphold most of them and excommunicating Cowdery. A revelation later declared that Hiram Smith would replace Cowdery as assistant president of the church. Cowdery spent the next few years studying and practicing law in Kirtland, eventually being admitted to the Ohio Bar as an attorney. He then moved 100 miles west to Tiffin, Ohio, where he continued to practice law for the next seven years. While in Tiffin, he corresponded with Latter-day Saints who hoped to reunite him with the church. Brigham Young's brother and Cowdery's brother-in-law, Phineas Young, visited Cowdery and learned that his heart is still with his old friends. On hearing this and other reports, Joseph encouraged the Quorum of the Twelve to invite Cowdery back into fellowship. Cowdery told members of the Twelve his disaffection had resulted mostly from aggressive Latter-day Saints in Missouri threatening him and not from any personal misgivings with the apostles or other leaders. Cowdery hoped his published testimony of the Book of Mormon could withstand his own shortcomings and reputation. For a time, it appeared that Cowdery might rejoin the saints in Nauvoo. Joseph Smith received and read a letter from Cowdery hours before being killed in Carthage Jail. In 1847, Cowdery moved to Wisconsin, hoping a change in climate would benefit his health. There he ran for the state assembly but lost the election by 40 votes and immediately contemplated joining the companies of Mormon pioneers migrating to Utah. Cowdery spoke at a conference in nearby Iowa and pledged his support to the Quorum of the Twelve. Days later, the High Council voted to readmit Cowdery into full fellowship. Orson Hyde of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles rebaptized, reconfirmed, and reordained Cowdery, who then made plans to reunite with the saints in Utah. His health continued to decline, however, and he passed away in 1850 before he could travel west. Well, with that formal introduction to Oliver Cowdery in place, let's now go to Stephen C. Harper's origin of Section 6. Let's also remember before reading this origin story that the translation of the Book of Mormon is still on hiatus. We're coming into the spring of 1829, and we're hoping that that venture can pick back up 
We're encouraged that that will be the case because of the language in Section 3 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And at the end of Section 5, Joseph was told that he would have a means to translate after he had paused for a little while. So as we come into this origin story, Joseph is still in this season before he is able to begin retranslating the Book of Mormon. So Harper writes, Struggling to meet their temporal needs, Joseph and Emma Smith made little progress on the translation of the plates. Remember, of course, that they're in their home in Harmony as relative newlyweds. In the spring of 1829, they're distanced by uh, over 100 miles from their parents in uh, Manchester, New York, and that the Finger Lakes region of New York lies between those two places, some kind of a northwest or southeast diagonal. They are in this home and farm on Isaac Hale's property that was then sold to his son Jesse. So now Joseph and Emma have acquired this, and after a very difficult summer, uh, fall, and winter, they're now coming into spring, and they really have had to uh, deal with issues relating to their own subsistence. And so most of Joseph's work relative to the restoration of the church and the translation of the Book of Mormon has been marginalized during this period. So again, Harper writes, Struggling to meet their temporal needs, Joseph and Emma Smith made little progress on the translation of the plates. Moreover, Joseph feared that Emma's father, Isaac Hale, who owned the property on which they lived, was about to turn me out of doors. Joseph cried unto the Lord that he would provide for me to accomplish the work whereunto he had commanded me. So here is Joseph, tasked with this great work of translating the Book of Mormon and wondering over all else that is to come through him, uh, yet he feels that he is on the verge of being evicted from this home and farm that he now has spent approximately 18 months with Emma. A great deal has happened in this home already. They've had a baby and lost that baby. Uh, the incident with Martin Harris has taken place. And of course, it's just the first place that they lived on their own as a newlywed couple. And now they're on the verge of being evicted, or at least that is Joseph's sense during this time. So again, it's in this spirit, as Harper points out, that he cries unto the Lord for help or for means to accomplish the work whereunto he had commanded me. In other words, the translation of the Book of Mormon. The sun was about to set, Harper continues, on a spring Sabbath when the Lord answered Joseph's prayers with a full-time scribe. Joseph's younger brother Samuel arrived at the home of Joseph and Emma with a 22-year-old school teacher named Oliver Cowdery. So again, they had made the trek from Manchester uh, down to Harmony. And this trip is made many times between Manchester and Harmony in this early history of the church. Uh, Joseph's trips to work for Josiah Stoll, uh, boarding with Isaac Hale in Harmony, then courting Emma. So there's lots of back and forth between Manchester and Harmony during that period. Then ultimately Joseph and Emma move, of course, to Harmony. Then there are visits to Harmony from Martin Harris. Then there's Joseph's trip from Harmony back to Manchester to find Martin in the summer of uh, 1828. Then there is Joseph Smith Sr.'s visit to Harmony in uh, 1829, which brought about Section 4. Then Martin's eventual visit to Harmony in the spring of 1829 that brought Section 5. So it's a well-trod path between these two places, between Manchester and Harmony, for these characters during this period of time. But I think we would do well to remember that it's a long trip. It's an arduous journey between Manchester, Palmyra region, and Harmony, Pennsylvania. So here we can see that Oliver is motivated enough to make this trip 
with Joseph's younger brother Samuel. Harper continues, Oliver had learned the facts relative to the plates from Joseph's parents and had prayerfully sought to know more. And of course, we know that Joseph Smith Sr. was reticent about sharing that information with Oliver originally. Uh, However, it seems that perhaps Section 4 emboldened, or the receipt of the revelation that is now Section 4, emboldened Joseph Smith Sr. to share his knowledge of Joseph Jr.'s experiences with Oliver Cowdery. The following day, Harper continues, Oliver told Joseph's parents that he had decided what to do. Samuel, I understand, is going down to Pennsylvania, he said, to spend the spring with Joseph. I shall make my arrangements to be ready to accompany him thither. Oliver declared, For I have made it a subject of prayer, and I firmly believe that it is the will of the Lord that I should go. If there is a work for me to do in this thing, I am determined to attend to it. Sure that Oliver could know such things for himself, Joseph's parents urged him to seek confirmation. The Lord visited Oliver, showed him the plates in a vision, and told him of the translation Joseph had begun. Soon, Oliver and Samuel set out for Pennsylvania, slogging through the spring mud. On the second day after his arrival, Oliver began scribing as Joseph translated the Book of Mormon. Oliver brought with him a spiritual gift he may sometimes have doubted, and we'll learn about that in this section, Doctrine and Covenant section 6, verse 10. It seems likely that one of Oliver's reasons to travel so far to see Joseph was the hope that he could learn more and perhaps find a fellow believer in the gift and power of God. If so, Oliver was not disappointed. Joseph inquired of the Lord through the Urim and Thummim and obtained the revelation recorded as Doctrine and Covenants section 6. Here's the introduction and timeline according to the Doctrine and Covenants student manual. It says, without a regular scribe, the translation of the Book of Mormon proceeded sporadically until March of 1829, when the prophet Joseph Smith was commanded to stop and wait for help. And we read of that in the previous section, in in, uh, verses 30 through 34 of section 5. In fulfillment of the Lord's promise to provide means, Oliver Cowdery arrived at the prophet's home in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and offered his help. With renewed effort, Joseph Smith began translating again on April 7th of 1829, with Oliver Cowdery assisting a scribe. Later that month, the prophet received the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants section 6. In this revelation, Oliver received counsel and confirmation concerning his role in the Lord's work. Here now are some timeline entries that are provided by the student manual. Late in 1828, Oliver Cowdery learned about Joseph Smith while living in Manchester, New York. So that, of course, is because he boarded with the Smiths, Uh, While Joseph and Emma are now living in harmony, uh, after they've endured the loss of their child and the loss of the 116 pages, and they're moving into winter, sometime during that time, in the meantime, in uh, Manchester, Oliver Cowdery was boarding with the Smiths and beginning to learn about Joseph. Then uh, fast forward to April of 1829, and that's when Oliver traveled to Harmony, Pennsylvania, to meet Joseph Smith. And in April of 1829 as well, the translation of the Book of Mormon proceeded in earnest with Oliver Cowdery acting as scribe. Here's some additional historical background to Section 6 that's provided by the student manual. In early 1829, the prophet Joseph Smith and his wife Emma were living in a small house near Emma's parents' home in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Joseph continued to translate the Book of Mormon plates during this time with assistance from Emma, but the work progressed slowly. In March, Joseph petitioned the Lord for help, and in response the Lord promised, I will provide means whereby thou mayest accomplish the thing which I have commanded thee. 
That again is at the end of section 5 that we recently read. That's verse 34. Soon afterward, Oliver Cowdery arrived and became Joseph's full-time scribe. So Oliver became those means. Oliver Cowdery was a schoolteacher who was boarding in the home of the Prophet Joseph Smith's parents, Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith, during the winter of 1828 and 1829. While in Palmyra, New York area, Oliver heard talk about the golden plates. He asked the Smith family about what he had heard, and after earning Joseph Smith Sr.'s trust, he learned more about Joseph Smith Jr.'s efforts to translate the plates. The prophet Joseph Smith later recorded that the Lord appeared unto a young man by the name of Oliver Cowdery and showed unto him the plates in a vision. Therefore, he was desirous to come and write for me. And uh, that can be read of in the Joseph Smith papers. Oliver Cowdery firmly believed that it was the Lord's will that he go to Joseph Smith and help him. So he traveled with Joseph Smith's brother, Samuel, to Harmony, Pennsylvania, arriving on April 5th of 1829. Joseph and Oliver began translating on April 7th of 1829. Not long after they began working together, the prophet received instructions from the Lord, providing direction to Oliver and clarifying his role in assisting Joseph. Now here is the background to Doctrine and Covenants section 6, according to Stephen E. Robinson and H. Dean Garrett in their commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants. They write, It was common practice in early 19th century New York for school teachers to board in the homes of their students. Thus it happened that 22-year-old Oliver Cowdery, a school teacher in Manchester, New York, came during the winter of 1828 and 1829 to board at the home of Joseph Smith Sr., for Oliver taught the prophet's younger brothers and sisters in school. In the Smith home, Oliver soon learned of Joseph Smith Jr. and of the gold plates and received an initial witness that the story was true. As he put it, the subject seems working in my very bones, and I cannot for a moment get it out of my mind. According to an 1832 history of Joseph Smith, Oliver eventually saw the Lord and the plates in vision, even before seeking out the prophet. After much humility and affliction of soul, Joseph Smith obtained them again when the Lord appeared unto a young man by the name of Oliver Cowdery and shewed unto him the plates in a vision, and also the truth of the work. To pursue the matter further, Oliver decided to travel the 125 miles to Harmony with Samuel Smith to determine for himself what his part in this great work might be. Meanwhile, in the two or three weeks since Martin Harris had left Harmony and returned to Palmyra, Joseph had made some effort to continue translating the Book of Mormon with the help of his wife, Emma. According to Lucy Mack Smith, however, the demands already placed upon Emma as a wife and the necessity laid upon Joseph to provide for his family's temporal needs made for very little progress in the work of translating. Finally, on the 2nd of April of 1829, Joseph asked the Lord to send him a scribe, and the Lord indicated to him that help would soon arrive. Three days later, Oliver Cowdery arrived at Harmony with the prophet's brother Samuel. Of course, Joseph knew immediately why Oliver had come. The prophet Joseph said, Two days after the arrival of Mr. Cowdery, being on the 7th of April, I commenced to translate the Book of Mormon, and he began to write for me, which having continued for some time, I inquired of the Lord through the Urim and Thummim, and obtained the following, Doctrine and Covenants, section 6. Here now is an excerpt from chapter 6 of the book Saints, and that chapter is called The Gift and Power of God. It says, Back in Manchester, a young man named Oliver Cowdery was staying with Joseph's parents, Oliver was a year younger than Joseph, and in the fall of 1828, he had begun teaching school about a mile south of the Smith's farm. 
Teachers often boarded with the families of their students, and when Oliver heard rumors about Joseph and the gold plates, he asked if he could stay with the Smiths. At first, he gleaned few details from the family. The stolen manuscript and local gossip had made them wary to the point of silence. But during the winter of 1828 and 1829, as Oliver taught the Smith children, he earned the trust of his hosts. Around this time, Joseph Sr. had come back from a trip to Harmony with a revelation, declaring that the Lord was about to begin a marvelous work. By then, Oliver had proven to be a sincere seeker of truth, and Joseph's parents opened up to him about their son's divine calling. What they said captivated Oliver, and he longed to help with the translation. Like Joseph, Oliver was dissatisfied with modern churches and believed in a God of miracles who still revealed his will to people. But Joseph and the gold plates were far away, and Oliver did not know how he could help the work if he stayed in Manchester. One spring day, as rain was falling hard against the smith's roof, Oliver told the family he wanted to go to Harmony to help Joseph when the school term was over. Lucy and Joseph Sr. urged him to ask the Lord if his desires were right. Retiring to his bed, Oliver prayed privately to know if what he had heard about the gold plates was true. The Lord showed him a vision of the gold plates and Joseph's efforts to translate them. A peaceful feeling rested over him, and he knew then that he should volunteer to be Joseph's scribe. Oliver told no one about his prayer, but as soon as the school term ended, he and Joseph's brother Samuel set out on foot for Harmony, more than a hundred miles away. The road was cold and muddy from spring rain, and Oliver had a frostbitten toe by the time he and Samuel arrived at Joseph and Emma's door. Yet he was eager to meet the couple and see for himself how the Lord worked through the young prophet. Once Oliver arrived in Harmony, it was as if he had always been there. Joseph talked with him late into the night, listened to his story, and answered his questions. It was obvious Oliver had a good education, and Joseph readily accepted his offer to act as scribe. After Oliver's arrival, Joseph's first task was to secure a place to work. He asked Oliver to draft a contract in which Joseph promised to pay his father-in-law for the small frame home where he and Emma lived, as well as the barn, farmland, and nearby spring. Mindful of their daughter's well-being, Emma's parents agreed to the terms and promised to help calm neighbors' fears about Joseph. Meanwhile, Joseph and Oliver started translating. They worked well together, weeks on end frequently with Emma in the same room going about her daily work. Sometimes Joseph translated by looking through the interpreters and reading in English the characters on the plates. Often he found a single seer stone to be more convenient. He would put the seer stone in his hat, place his face into the hat to block out the light, and peer into the stone. Light from the stone would shine in the darkness, revealing words that Joseph dictated as Oliver rapidly copied them down. Under the Lord's direction, Joseph did not try to retranslate what he had lost. Instead, he and Oliver continued forward in the record. The Lord revealed that Satan had enticed wicked men to take the pages, after their words, and use them to cast doubt on the translation. But the Lord assured Joseph that he had inspired the ancient prophets who prepared the plates to include another, fuller account of the lost material. It will confound those who have altered my words, the Lord told Joseph. I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. Acting as Joseph's scribe thrilled Oliver. Day after day he listened as his friend dictated the complex history of two large civilizations, the Nephites and the Lamanites. He learned of righteous and wicked kings, of people who fell into captivity and were delivered from it, 
of an ancient prophet who used seer stones to translate records from fields filled with bones. Like Joseph, the prophet was a revelator and seer, blessed with the gift and power of God. The record testified again and again of Jesus Christ, and Oliver saw how prophets led an ancient church and how ordinary men and women did the work of God. Yet Oliver still had many questions about the Lord's work, and he hungered for answers. Joseph sought a revelation for him through the Urim and Thummim, and the Lord responded, If you will ask of me, you shall receive, he declared. If thou wilt inquire, thou shalt know mysteries, which are great and marvelous. The Lord also urged Oliver to remember the witness he had received before coming to Harmony, which Oliver had kept to himself. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? The Lord asked. If I have told you things which no man knoweth, have you not received a witness? Oliver was astonished. He immediately told Joseph about his secret prayer and the divine witness he had received. No one could have known about it except God, he said and he now knew the work was true. The book Revelations in Context, the stories behind the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, has a short entry relative to section 6. It says translation continued for several days, and then Joseph received a revelation for his new scribe. Oliver's lingering doubts about Joseph Smith's prophetic gift were addressed as the words of the revelation related experiences Oliver had not shared with anyone. Cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart, that you might know concerning the truth of these things, the Lord reminded him. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? Doubt not, fear not. Oliver came to Harmony, believing he had been called to write for Joseph. Now he was there, and wanted to know what else the Lord had in store for him. Behold, thou hast a gift, the Lord stated in a revelation, and blessed art thou because of thy gift. Remember, it is sacred and cometh from above. His gift was the gift of revelation, and by it he could find out mysteries that he may bring many to the knowledge of the truth, yea, convince them of the error of their ways. Now, finally, here is a historical background that is provided for an entry in the Joseph Smith Papers uh, for Doctrine and Covenants section 6, which is the earliest complete version of this revelation that was found in the Book of Commandments. We're told here that there was a written version that was um, penned by John Whitmer, but it's no longer available in its entirety. And so what we find on the Joseph Smith Papers website is actually a typeset version of this revelation uh, that was owned by Wilford Woodruff. So here's the historical introduction to that typeset version of this revelation. It says, This revelation was dictated for Oliver Cowdery soon after he arrived in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and began serving as Joseph's scribe for the translation of the plates. Joseph Smith's history stated, Two days after the arrival, Mr. Cowdery, being the 7th of April, and I, commenced to translate the Book of Mormon, and he commenced to write for me, which having continued for some time, I inquired of the Lord through the Urim and Thummim, and obtained the following revelation. The exact date this text was dictated is unknown. The revelation apparently answered questions Cowdery had contemplated but not expressed to Joseph Smith. According to Cowdery's friend David Whitmer, soon after Oliver's arrival in Harmony, he wrote to me and said that Joseph had inquired of the Lord concerning him and had told him secrets of his life that he knew could not be known to any person but himself in any other way than by revelation from the Almighty. Joseph Smith's history recounted, After we had received this revelation, 
He, meaning Oliver Cowdery, stated to me that after he had gone to my father's to board, and after the family communicated to him concerning my having got the plates, that one night after he had retired to bed, he called upon the Lord to know if these things were so, and that the Lord had manifested to him that they were true. Joseph Smith also explained that Cowdery had seen the Lord and the plates in a vision, and was desirous to come and write for Joseph Smith in harmony. The revelation featured below built on that experience by announcing that if Cowdery desired, the Lord would grant him a gift to translate, even as my servant Joseph. With that introduction in place now, let's move to the text of section 6. We'll first look at the way that it's structured, and that'll be with the help of the sectional divisions that are provided in the text itself. We can first see in this section spanning verses 1 through 6 that the Lord's laborers in his field will gain salvation. That's a theme that we'll see in other sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, of course, and we'll read some commentary about the repetition of that theme. Then verses 7 through 13 will talk about salvation in particular, and we'll say that there is no greater gift than salvation. That's a point that will be made uh, in section 14 a little bit later as well, when it says that eternal life is the greatest of all gifts from God. Now we come into verse 14. And from this verse to verse 27, the Lord will discuss the witness of the truth and how this witness comes by the power of the Spirit. Then in the final portion of this section, uh, spanning from verses 28 through 37, the Lord will have a very memorable and beautiful way of talking to Oliver and actually Oliver and Joseph about how they can look unto Christ and do good continually. Let's return now to verse 1 for a reading. And before doing that, here's a short summary of what's found in this section from Susan Black. She says in section 6, Joseph and Oliver were told that a marvelous work is about to come forth unto the children of men, and the field is white already to harvest. They were admonished to keep my commandments and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. By so doing, the promise given was knowledge of the mysteries of God, the gift to translate holy writ, and an opportunity to do much good in this generation. To accomplish the expected good, Oliver learned that the Lord knew his thoughts and intents of his heart. He was reminded of the night that he cried unto the Lord, Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? Asked God. What greater witness can you have than from God? Therefore, perform with soberness the work which I have commanded you. Verse 1. A great and marvelous work is about to come forth unto the children of men. Daniel Ludlow has written, The Lord uses the adjectives great and marvelous several times to refer to different aspects of his work, including two references in this one revelation, in verses 1 and verse uh, 11. Of course, we can think about how that relates to the phrase marvelous work, or marvelous work and a wonder, as it's phrased in Isaiah. President Nelson has recently referred to that as a miraculous miracle. Daniel Ludlow has also written this in an entry called Great and Marvelous Work in the appendix of his Doctrine and Covenants study guide. He says, In one of its widest applications, the term Great and Marvelous Work refers to all of the principles, powers, keys, ordinances, and events associated with the dispensation of the fullness of times, which would include the restitution and restoration of all things since the beginning of time upon the earth. In some of its narrower applications, The term might be used to refer to one or another aspect of this dispensation. In such limited usage, for example, the events associated with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon might be referred to as a great and marvelous work. 
John A. Widso has written, Not only in numbers have we become a marvelous work and a wonder, but in a greater and a larger sense we become a marvelous people, for we have impressed our thought upon the whole world. The world does not believe today as it did 90 years ago. A few days ago, I picked up a recent number of a great magazine, and my feelings were roused within me and my testimony increased when I found one of the writers declaring to the readers of the magazine that God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of tolerance, borrowed almost word for word from section one of the Doctrine and Covenants. In such a way have the doctrines taught by the despised Latter-day Saints been appropriated by the nations of the earth. And whether the people of the earth accept the inspiration of Joseph Smith, nevertheless, in fact, the whole current of human thought has been changed by the doctrines of this people. That is perhaps the greatest achievement of Mormonism. Who cares if we are few? We are as yeast in the dough and will yet ferment the whole earth. That's a beautiful statement by Elder Witso, and that's in a 1921 October conference report. Verse 2, now that the Lord has announced this great and marvelous work that's about to come forth. So clearly it has not yet, even though so many marvelous things have happened for Joseph and for Oliver. Verse 2, Behold, I am God. Give heed unto my word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of both joints and marrow. Therefore give heed unto my words." Robertson and Garrett have written that the term quick is used in its older sense to mean alive or living. Then with respect to the phrase sharper than a two-edged sword, they write that this refers not to a one-handed foil or saber, but to a heavy two-handed broadsword that is sharpened on both its edges. Thus the same weapon may defend and save the repentant and the contrite or punish the wicked and rebellious. Susan Black has written that the phrase sharper than a two-edged sword descriptively illustrates the power of God to penetrate the thoughts and intents of the heart. Then she points out that this phrase appears many times, or this idea appears many times in the Doctrine and Covenants. We'll later see it in section 11, section 12, 14, 33, and 85. The most famous iteration of this idea, however, is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Something similar can also be found in Isaiah 49, in Ephesians chapter 6, Revelation chapter 2, and in 3 Nephi chapter 11. Then she says, The Lord can reach the repentant and rebellious alike. With his power, the Lord defends the repentant. With his strength, he pierces the rebellious for embracing false ideas and carnal thoughts. Smith and Soljal have written, The word of God is quick. It is living and not dead. It is powerful. It is a force like compressed steam or electricity. As a sharp two-edged sword, it pierces and cuts and penetrates to the inmost parts of man, being a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, thankfully, we'll have even more opportunity to talk about the word and its effect upon the hearts of the hearers. And of course, there's the parable of the sower. Uh, When we think about how it is that this two-edged sword does divide, we might think about the way in which the word affects us when we hear it. If it spurs us towards repentance, then it is probably dividing us into the right camp or sending us in the right direction. If it instead spurs us to cover our sins and gratify our pride or to rewrite the rules of reality to something that conforms to our behavior, then of course it has sent us in the wrong direction or more specifically our hardened ground or our hardened hearts have sent us in the wrong direction. So the key it seems is to be ever receptive to the word. And of course, as Alma has said, the ultimate key 
is that one day the word will be found in us. He expresses that idea in Alma chapter 12, and then later, of course, in Alma chapter 32, with reference to the seed that grows in our hearts and springs up like the tree of life. Verse 3, Behold, the field is white, all ready to harvest. Therefore, whoso desireth to reap, let him thrust in his sickle with his might, and reap while the day lasts, that he may treasure up for his soul everlasting salvation in the kingdom of God. Yea, whosoever will thrust in his sickle and reap, the same is called of God. Well, Daniel Ludlow has talked about this as being harvest imagery or harvest symbols when we see this language in the Doctrine and Covenants, and he has an entry on this subject that I'd like to read. He says, Frequently the Savior in his teachings would use examples and symbols with which the people could easily and readily identify. Inasmuch as all of us on the earth must rely for sustenance upon the agricultural products that come directly or indirectly from the soil, most of us are acquainted with terms having to do with harvesting. It should not be surprising, therefore, that the master teacher frequently used symbols pertaining to the harvest. The major symbols of the harvest, possible definitions, and selected references where they may be found in the Doctrine and Covenants are as follows. There is the vineyard or field, which is the world, or that part of the world or area of the vineyard, in which the activity was being carried forth. We'll see that in sections 4, 6, 11, 12, 14, 31, and 33. Then there's the harvest. That's the precious souls of mankind in the world. Sometimes the word also has reference to the actual process of teaching the gospel or carrying out the activity indicated. And that word is also found in many of the same sections that I just uh, listed, or that Ludlow lists. Uh, But there's also section 45, 56, 86, and 101. Then there are laborers. The laborers are the missionaries or others who have the responsibility to teach the gospel or carry out the activity indicated. And many references follow there. Then there's reap with a sickle or scythe, and that's the process of harvesting or of teaching the gospel. The sickle is an important implement used in cutting the grain or crop so that it can be harvested. Then there are sheaves, uh, and that's the people of the world who are converted to the true gospel. The Savior also noted, Ludlow continues, these symbols in the New Testament times. Luke records that when the Lord organized his missionary forces, he appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two, and said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. That's out of Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. He also counseled his disciples, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. That can be found in John chapter 4, verses 35 through 36. As indicated earlier, the symbol of the white field already to harvest denotes the people of the earth who are ready to receive the gospel. The Lord of the harvest is, of course, Jesus Christ, whose gospel it is. Verse 5, Therefore, if you will ask of me, you shall receive. If you will knock, it shall be opened unto you. Well, this too, of course, is an expression and an image that is found in other places in Scripture, and it's uh, really central to the teachings of the Savior that are found in Scripture. And, And here's a beautiful piece of commentary also from Daniel Ludlow in the same appendix, uh, Appendix A, to his uh, companion to your study of the Doctrine and Covenants. And this entry is simply called Prayer. It says, There is no reason in the world why any soul should not know where to find the truth. 
If he will only humble himself and seek in the spirit of humility and faith, going to the Lord just as the prophet Joseph Smith went to the Lord to find the truth, he will find it. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. This is my testimony. I know it is true. And I, I failed to mention that as Ludlow uh, gave us that, it's actually a quote from a conference report by Joseph Fielding Smith, an April 1951 conference report. Now here is Ludlow's entry. Before the Lord sent his children upon the earth, he provided means by which he could communicate with them through the Holy Ghost, prophets, and scriptures, and by which they could communicate with him, which is through prayer. He has counseled us to ask, seek, knock, and has promised that if we ask in faith with nothing wavering, he will answer our prayers for our good. And now here are some quotations that Ludlow provides that illustrate this teaching. This first is from John A. Witso, and he wrote, Man's needs are many. He has little, if any, power of himself to supply them. Therefore, he turns to God for the necessary help. This he can properly do, for the Lord who has placed man on earth with limited powers has declared himself ready to assist his children. He has given them the privilege to address divinity with the assurance of being heard. Indeed, he has requested them to approach him in prayer for guidance in solving life's problems. Prayer is really the beginning of wisdom. By prayer, communion between man and God is established and maintained. It brings man and his maker into close association. Earnest, sincere prayer places man in tune with heaven and with the beings who dwell therein. The knowledge and power thus gained from the unseen world are very real. Every prayer is heard and every sincere prayer is answered. They who pray should be content to await the answer at the time and in the manner comporting with God's wisdom. He knows what is for our good and bestows his blessings accordingly. The testimony of untold millions that their prayers have been heard is a convincing testimony that God hears and answers prayers. A prayer is not complete unless gratitude for blessings received is expressed. It is by the power of the Lord that we live and move and have our being, as it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. This should be frankly stated gratefully as we pray to our Father in heaven. Here's a statement from President Howard W. Hunter in an October 1977 conference address. He said, Henry Ward Beecher once said, It is not well for a man to pray cream and live skimmed milk. That was a century ago. There is now before us a danger that many may pray skim milk and live that not at all. Our modern times seem to suggest that prayerful devotion and reverence for holiness is unreasonable or undesirable or both. And yet, skeptical modern men have need for prayer. Perilous moments, great responsibility, deep anxiety, overwhelming grief, these challenges that shake us out of old complacencies and established routines will bring to the surface our native impulses. If we let them, they will humble us, soften us, and turn us to respectful prayer. If prayer is only a spasmodic cry at the time of crisis, then it is utterly selfish and we come to think of God as a repairman or a service agency to help us only in our emergencies. We should remember the Most High day and night, always, not only at times when all other assistance has failed and we desperately need help. If there is any element in human life on which we have a record of miraculous success and inestimable worth to the human soul, it is prayerful, reverential, devout communication with our Heavenly Father. Boyd K. Packer once wrote, Learn how to pray and how to receive answers to your prayers. 
When you pray over some things, you must patiently wait a long, long time before you will receive an answer. Some prayers for your own safety must be answered immediately, and some promptings will even come when you haven't prayed at all. Once you really determine to follow that guide, your testimony will grow, and you will find provisions set out along the way in unexpected places as evidence that someone knew that you would be traveling that way. Elder Robert L. Simpson wrote, May I be bold enough to suggest that your Heavenly Father knows you personally and can call you by name. This thought itself is admittedly almost beyond the comprehension of mortal understanding. But please, let us not limit the Creator of heaven and earth in any way, for His powers are limitless, and the basic concept must hold that a father knows his children. As a child of God kneels to pray, that individual must believe implicitly that his prayer is being heard by him to whom the prayer is addressed. The thought that our Heavenly Father is too busy, or that our message is being recorded by celestial computers for possible future consideration, is unthinkable and inconsistent with all that we have been taught by His holy prophets. Now here's a statement that Ludlow provides from Joseph F. Smith in an October 1899 conference report. He said, Prayer does not consist of words altogether. True, faithful, earnest prayer consists more in the feeling that arises from the heart and from the inward desire of our spirits to supplicate the Lord in humility and in faith that we may receive His blessings. It matters not how simple the words may be if our desires are genuine And we come before the Lord with a broken heart and a contrite spirit to ask Him for that which we need. Do not learn to pray with your lips only. Do not learn a prayer by heart and say it every morning and evening. A great many people fall into the rut of saying over a ceremonious prayer. They begin at a certain point, and they touch all the points along the road until they get to the winding up scene. And when they have done, I do not know whether the prayer has ascended beyond the ceiling of the room or not. President Ezra Taft Benson has written, May I suggest some ways to improve our communication with our Heavenly Father. One, we should pray frequently. Two, we should find an appropriate place where we can meditate and pray. Three, we should prepare ourselves for prayer. Four, our prayers should be meaningful and pertinent. In all our prayers, it is well to use the sacred pronouns of the scriptures, thee, thou, thy, and thine, when addressing deity in prayer, instead of the more common pronouns of you, your, and yours. In this arrangement, we show greater respect to deity. 5. After making a request through prayer, we have a responsibility to assist in its being granted. We should listen. Perhaps while we are on our knees, the Lord wants to counsel us. Now returning to the text, verse 6 says, Now, as you have asked, behold, I say unto you, keep my commandments, and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. There's quite a lot of commentary available on this phrase, to seek forth and establish the cause of Zion. First this from the Doctrine and Covenant student manual. The Lord invited the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to keep his commandments and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. This is the first mention of Zion in the Doctrine and Covenants. To bring forth and establish the cause of Zion could be understood as the work of restoring the gospel of Jesus Christ, organizing the church of Jesus Christ anew in our day, and preaching the gospel in order to gather others to Zion. John A. Witzow wrote in a 1940 conference report, The question as to individual responsibility for the welfare of the church was asked in the early days of the members of the church. Several of the men who labored with the prophet Joseph Smith came to him in those early days and said, What shall we do? They might have said, What shall we do to be saved? The Lord in every instance gave an answer. 
We have a series of short revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, which are answers to that question. I find in every one a significant statement, worded almost identically in all of these revelations, to Hiram Smith, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and others of less fame in the Church, keep my commandments and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. That is our business, the business of the Latter-day Saints. We are here to build Zion to Almighty God for the blessing of all the world. In that aim, we are unique and different from all other peoples. We must respect that obligation and not be afraid of it. We cannot walk as other men or talk as other men or do as other men, for we have a different destiny, obligation, and responsibility placed upon us, and we must fit ourselves for that great destiny and obligation. Robinson and Garrett have written that Zion is the kingdom of God upon the earth, a society that governs itself by celestial principles. Spiritual Zion now consists of the faithful membership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The land of Zion will be established at some future time and will consist of the consecrated gathering places of the saints prior to the second coming of the Savior. Verse 7, Seek not for riches, but for wisdom. And behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you, and then shall you be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. First, here's some commentary from the student manual with regard to the phrase, the mysteries of God. The Lord promised Oliver Cowdery that if he would seek for wisdom, the mysteries of God would be unfolded unto him. In the scriptures, the phrase, mysteries of God, refers to the spiritual truths only known by revelation. God reveals his mysteries to those who are obedient to the gospel. And an entry can be found uh, in Guide to the Scriptures on Mysteries of God that uh, talk about this further. While these truths are largely unknown and not understood and appreciated by the world, followers of Jesus Christ can gain knowledge and understanding of gospel truths through a study of the Scriptures and the words of living prophets and from personal revelation received through the Holy Ghost. The Doctrine and Covenants encourages readers to seek for greater spiritual understanding of the mysteries of God by keeping the commandments and asking God in faith. I think mysteries is a fascinating word. It has a scriptural meaning that is slightly different, I think, than the way that we usually take it today as we use it in a more colloquial sense. Really, it really does have to do with revelation and and perhaps less to do, at least in most instances, about things that are generally not well understood or inaccessible. However, when we really consider how rare it is, living on the earth today, to have a knowledge of the basic truths of the restoration, things that were really lost to Christianity for so many centuries, concepts such as the nature of God, our pre-mortal existence, and of course the doctrine of Christ. To the world, these simple and beautiful concepts are indeed mysteries. The only way to obtain them rather than through contention, through the argumentation of man, as the Savior points out in 3 Nephi chapter 11, is through revelation. And uh, that's what makes these great mysteries so special. Susan Black has written, Too often mysteries are misconstrued as unnecessary or superfluous knowledge. What some label as gospel trivia, or Bruce R. McConkie has used the phrase, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, for example. Such is not the case, Black continues, with godly mysteries as spoken of in the Revelations. To solve a mystery is to unlock godly truths. Oliver Cowdery unlocked godly truths through revelation and priesthood administration. Robinson and Garrett have written, A mystery is a truth that cannot be known except through divine revelation, a sacred secret. 
In our day, such great truths as those pertaining to the restoration of the priesthood, the work for the dead, and the reestablishment of the church are mysteries because they could not have been discovered except by revelation. Well, now let's notice for just a minute the way in which this verse contrasts the value of mysteries, now that we've established their great value, with the value of worldly riches. Daniel Ludlow has written that the Lord created the heavens and the earth and all things that are in the heavens and the earth. All material things essentially belong to God, as he is the creator of the basic elements from which all things are made. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, as Psalm 24 verse 1 says. God could create additional things for the blessing of his church and his saints if this were necessary. He has given man the opportunity of creating things out of the elements he has provided. Man should not place his major attention or interest upon such material things. However, for the major purpose of man's existence is to develop spiritually so he can regain the presence of our Heavenly Father. Thus, if man is blessed with an abundance of material riches, he should use these for the blessing of others. Wilford Woodruff has written, Remember, the greatest gift that God can bestow upon us is eternal life. And it is worth more than all the houses and lands or the gold and the silver upon the earth. For by and by we will go to the grave, and that puts an end to worldly possessions as far as our using them is concerned. The grave finds a home for all flesh, and no man can take his houses and lands, his gold and silver, or anything else of a worldly character with him. We brought none of these things with us when we came from our previous state, all the knowledge that we can accumulate from experience and observation and from the revelations of God to man, goes to show that the riches of this world are fleeting and transitory, while he that has eternal life abiding in him is rich indeed. Anthon H. Lund has written, We do not look upon wealth in itself as a curse. We believe that those who can handle means rightly can do much to bless their fellows. But he who is ruled by the love of money is tempted to commit sin. The love of money is the root of all evil, as 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says. There is hardly a commandment, but it is violated through this seeking for riches. Brigham Young has written, It is thought by many that the possession of gold and silver will produce for them happiness, and hence thousands hunt the mountains for the precious metals. In this they are mistaken. The possession of wealth alone does not produce happiness. Verse 8. Verily, verily, I say unto you, even as you desire of me, so it shall be unto you. And if you desire, you shall be the means of doing much good in this generation. Say nothing but repentance unto this generation. Keep my commandments and assist to bring forth my work according to my commandments, and you shall be blessed. Joseph Fielding Smith has written the following about this phrase, say nothing but repentance, in his book, Church History and Modern Revelation. In the revelation to Oliver Cowdery and to several others who came to ask what the Lord would have them do, the Lord said, Say nothing but repentance unto this generation. Keep my commandments and assist to bring forth my work. We must not infer from this expression that those who went forth to preach were limited in their teachings so that all they could say was repent from your sins. But in teaching the principles of the gospel, they should do so with the desire to teach repentance to the people and bring them in humility to a realization of the need for a remission of their sins. Even today, in all of our preaching, it should be with the desire to bring people to repentance and faith in God. That was the burden of John's message as he went forth to prepare the way of the Lord. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He declared to the people, but he also taught them the necessity of baptism and officiated in that ordinance for all who repented of their sins. 
So, as President Smith writes, when the Lord calls upon his servants to cry nothing but repentance, he does not mean that they may not cry baptism and call upon the people to obey the commandments of the Lord, but he wishes that all that they say and do be in the spirit of bringing the people to repentance. So I think as we consider the meaning of repentance, there's something really valuable in all of this because we tend to condense it right down to that behavioral shift that happens in our lives uh, when we repent. But the power of repentance really uh, runs so much deeper than that, I think, and the concept is much broader. Uh, It can imply and include, really, the entire doctrine of Christ. It's the operative part of the doctrine of Christ in a way. And so I think it's appropriate for the Lord to say, cry nothing but repentance, because it does imply, I think, the entire doctrine of Christ. This is something I think I've spoken of previously and won't elucidate upon too much here, but I think that repentance really involves two changes. It's the actuating change that we make that's likened to the woman reaching out and touching the hem of the Savior's garment. But then there's the great and miraculous change that happens to us as a result of us having made that actuating gesture. And that is the power of Jesus Christ that flows into us, transforms us, and heals us. I think that is is the major change of repentance, and the actuating gesture is like unto the widow's might. Yet our small gesture is an act of our own agency, and so it is what opens the floodgates. And so both of these changes are what take place in the process of repentance Repentance is not the pejorative that it is often considered to be, and Elder Renland recently said that it's not simply miserable behavior modification. So I think it helps to really think about repentance and what it is and what it isn't, and in this sense that it implies so much. It implies the entrance through Nephi's gate onto the path, and then repentance is the thing that keeps us on the path as we progress to the ultimate destination and the doctrine of Christ, which is the tree of life or exaltation. Well, now that we've come to the end of verse 9, we can consider how this entire passage from verses 1 through 9 are similar to other places in the Doctrine and Covenants. And this is something that Robinson and Garrett have spoken about. They've said that with very slight variations, the text of Doctrine and Covenants section 6 verses 1 through 9 is the same as section 11 verses 1 through 9. A revelation given later to Hiram Smith, Joseph's brother. Also, Doctrine and Covenants section 6, verses 1 through 6, is the same as section 12, verses 1 through 6, a revelation to Joseph Knight. And verses 1 through 5 are the same as section 14, verses 1 through 5, a revelation to David Whitmer. Further, section 6, verse 6, is also very similar in substance to section 14, verse 6. And section 4 is very similar in substance to the opening verses of all these subsequent revelations, sections 6, 11 through 12, and 14. This repetition should not be understood as a divine form letter implying less than personal or individual concern for the recipients. Rather, it emphasizes the importance of the calling made to these servants and to all who have followed them in the Lord's service. The sacred ordinances of the gospel, while creating an individual, personal bond with each person, often employ the same words for all who receive them. That the Sermon on the Mount was repeated on more than one occasion, for example, emphasizes the tremendous importance of the sermon. So I think here Robinson and Garrett are doing a wonderful job of addressing a a sometimes unspoken 
question as we read this early part of the Doctrine and Covenants and see this redundance and see this repetition. And they're very careful to show uh, where it comes from. The seeds of this, uh, we might say, are in section 4 and in section 6, and then we'll see them again uh, in, in several other early sections. But they're making it clear here that this repetition makes these words all the more significant and, and not less. So now let's return to the text and come to verse 10. Now that Oliver has been admonished in the way that he has in the previous verses, he's told this very personal thing here. Behold, thou hast a gift, and blessed art thou because of thy gift. Remember, it is sacred and cometh from above. Well, Daniel Ludlow has said that Oliver Cowdery's gift was the spirit of revelation, and we'll learn more about that in section 8, by which he could obtain knowledge of things divine. He also had the gift of Aaron, Aaron was the spokesman of Moses, and Oliver Cowdery became the first spokesman of the prophet, or the church, when on the 30th of April in 1830, he preached the first public discourse in this dispensation. And I misattributed that a moment ago. That was actually Smith and Sojall, but it's found in Ludlow's book. The word gift is uh, really significant in verse 10, and Robertson and Garrett have said that the gift here mentioned is Oliver's calling to be the scribe of Joseph to assist in the translation of the Book of Mormon, and to establish Zion. This gift, together with its attendant blessings of revelation, was lost by Martin Harris through his carelessness and lack of faith. And that's true. Here we are in 1829. All of this started first with Martin Harris in 1828, but um, that privilege of Martin's was lost, and now Oliver has come into Joseph's life to be the means for the translation of the Book of Mormon as it was expressed at the end of section 5. Verse 11, And if thou wilt inquire, thou shalt know mysteries which are great and marvelous. Therefore thou shalt exercise thy gift, that thou mayest find out mysteries, that thou mayest bring many to the knowledge of the truth, yea, convince them of the error of their ways. Robinson and Garrett have written regarding mysteries, Anything that is known to God and not known to man is a mystery to man. One of the promises made to Oliver and others in this dispensation is that if they seek, they can know mysteries. At the time of this revelation, the content of the Book of Mormon was a mystery, and much of what we take for granted today as basic principles of the restored gospel was still a mystery to Oliver and Joseph in 1829. Verse 12, Make not thy gift known unto any, save it be those who are of thy faith. Trifle not with sacred things. Oliver's gift, his calling, and its attendant blessings, as Robinson and Garrett have written, was sacred and not to be cast indiscriminately before the world. Verse 13, If thou wilt do good, yea, and hold out faithful to the end, thou shalt be saved in the kingdom of God, which is the greatest of all the gifts of God, for there is no gift greater than the gift of salvation. To this phrase, gift of salvation, Robertson and Garrett have written, Though some would try to take credit for working out their own salvation, the scripture here reminds us that salvation is ultimately a gift of God not a purchase, not a contractual obligation, not a just reward or a wage. Salvation is a gift through the mercy of God and the atonement of Christ. This, I think, is a critical point, as there most certainly is a tendency today for us to think of this as being a transactional sort of a proposition, that salvation in some sense is earned. This is a common misconception, I think, among members of the church, and of course, Satan would have it that way. 
it would certainly explain this misconception that's so widespread, would certainly explain the popularity of Brad Wilcox's talk regarding grace. There's a wonderful new book by Fiona and Terrell Givens that I've kind of referenced in the previous podcast recording, and in fact, between these two recordings, I've read that book. It's called All Things New. It addresses this subject in depth. It's a beautiful book, and I'd highly recommend it. Well, now we come into verse 14, and we discuss a witness of the truth, which comes by the power of the Spirit through these many verses. And we now know the backstory of Oliver Cowdery and the way in which he did receive a witness in Manchester before he ever traveled to Harmony and how the Lord acknowledges this here. So we'll come into this story now. Verse 14, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Blessed art thou for what thou hast done. For thou hast inquired of me, and behold, as often as thou hast inquired, thou hast received instruction of my spirit. If it had not been so, thou wouldst not have come to the place where thou art at this time. So here is the Lord very openly acknowledging and very clearly explaining that Oliver is now in harmony because of the process that already has taken place. Yes, it was Oliver's own intrinsic desire to come to harmony, and sometimes it can be hard to differentiate between that, I think, and direction from the Lord. But the Lord is making it very clear here that he is in harmony because he has inquired and has received instruction of my spirit, as that verse says. So I think we certainly can relate with this because we ask for guidance all the time, and we receive guidance by the Spirit. Uh, Sometimes, though, the circumstances that come from that and the decisions that we make that spin out of that can still feel like doings of our own. But the Lord here is making it clear that that is not the case and that uh, Oliver is indeed being led by the Spirit. Verse 15, Behold, thou knowest that thou hast inquired of me, and I did enlighten thy mind. And now I tell thee these things, that thou mayest know that thou hast been enlightened by the Spirit of truth. So, of course, We can think here of of Nephi's statement that he was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which he should do. Elder Bednar spoke of that recently in a training meeting to church educational system leaders, and he talked about the way in which Nephi was led along uh, through the darkness and may not always have had as clear a sense for what to do as, as we might think, and that he was led through that process by the Spirit. Elder Bednar goes on to explain that we... Uh, having the gift of the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, uh, as long as we have that companionship with us, then as we are using our best judgment in our decisions as we progress through life, we can be assured that that is often what the guidance of the Holy Ghost looks and feels like. Robinson and Garrett have written, Oliver, like Nephi, for example, and unlike Laman, asked God to know if these things were true. In response to his requests, both prior to and upon this occasion, the Spirit answered him with varying degrees of confirmation, including the direct witness mentioned here. Usually such enlightenment is rather subtle. President Boyd K. Packer has written, While this spiritual communication comes into the mind, it comes more as a feeling and impression than simply as a thought. Unless you have experienced it, it is very difficult to describe that delicate process. Verse 11, Yea, I tell thee that thou mayest know that there is none else save God that knowest thy thoughts and the intents of thy heart. This is a compelling verse, I think, and an interesting teaching shines through. It reminds me of a talk that was given by Francis 
Gibbons many years ago about silent prayer. I think I'll, I'll be reading from that in just a moment. But first this from Daniel Ludlow. He says, Although Lucifer has a great deal of power, which he uses to tempt, deceive, and entice men, he does not have the power to read thoughts, as there is none else save God that knoweth thy thoughts and the intents of thy heart. The writings of Moses also indicate that Satan does not know the mind of God, and Satan knew not the mind of God, therefore he sought to destroy the world. So it says in Moses chapter 4, verse 6. President James E. Faust once taught that Satan cannot know our thoughts unless we speak them. Now here's an excerpt from this talk by Elder Francis L. Gibbons. This was in October of 1991. The talk is called The Dual Aspects of Prayer. He says another key scripture on prayer which goes beyond admonition to the realm of command is found in Doctrine and Covenants section 19, which reads, And again I command thee that thou shalt pray vocally as well as in thy heart, yea, before the world as well as in private, in public as well as in private. That's in verse 19, excuse me, in verse 28 of section 19. We may ask, says Elder Gibbons, why has God seen fit to make it a command that we pray both vocally and in secret? Obviously, secret prayer is necessary in many cases where it is awkward or infeasible to pray vocally. So if we are in a social or a business setting and need comfort or direction, a resort to secret prayer is often our only alternative. But a more significant reason for praying secretly is found in the Doctrine and Covenants section 6, where it is written, Yea, I tell thee that thou mayest know that there is none else save God that knowest thy thoughts and the intents of thy heart. Other scriptures broaden this concept to include not only God, but those whom God inspires. So Zeezrom, the crafty lawyer who was taught by Alma and Amulek, became convinced that they knew the thoughts and intents of his heart, for power was given unto them that they might know of these things according to the spirit of prophecy. It is clear then, Elder Gibbons continues, that Satan and his followers who have been cast out of God's presence and are dead to his spirit are excluded from those who, by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, may know the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So, in his wisdom and mercy, God has provided a channel of communication between him and his children on earth that Satan, our common enemy, cannot invade. This is the channel of secret prayer. The significance of this to the Latter-day Saint is profound, for by this means we are able to communicate with our Heavenly Father in secrecy, confident that the adversary cannot intrude. Now the Lord continues in verse 17, saying, I tell thee these things as a witness unto thee, that the words or the work which thou hast been writing are true. So Oliver has already shown a great deal of faith. He has had this manifestation uh, in Manchester that we've learned about, that no one else knew about except for the Lord himself. Then he has had this experience of translating the Book of Mormon with Joseph thus far, and we don't know exactly when this revelation was given relative to where they were in the translation process, but uh, even in addition to all these experiences that Oliver has had, he has this witness on this occasion that the Lord is referring to here in verse 17. The Doctrine and Covenant student manual says that Oliver Cowdery was among the first individuals to ask God about the work of the prophet Joseph Smith. As each of us must do, Oliver needed to learn how to recognize the manifestations of the Spirit. From the Lord's words contained in Doctrine and Covenants section 6, verses 14 through 15, Oliver learned that he had received divine guidance as often as he had prayed. 
The Lord reminded Oliver that in response to his prayers, the Spirit had instructed him and enlightened his mind. The Lord also pointed out that the witness of the truthfulness of the restored gospel that Oliver had received in this way had led him from Palmyra to Harmony and to the work he was now engaged in. By reminding Oliver of previous revelatory experiences, the Lord helped increase Oliver's capacity to recognize revelation through the Spirit in the future. Elder Richard G. Scott of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taught, One of the great lessons that each of us needs to learn is to ask, Why does the Lord want us to pray to Him and to ask? Because that is how revelation is received. If you feel that God has not answered your prayers, ponder these scriptures, and then Elder Scott refers to verses 14 and 15 of section 6. Then carefully look for evidence in your own life that He may have already answered you. Verse 18, Therefore, be diligent, stand by my servant Joseph, faithfully, in whatsoever difficult circumstances he may be for the word's sake. We were told about the word earlier in this section, about the effect of the word being as a two-edged sword. And uh, here we're seeing that Joseph may be in difficult circumstances for the word's sake. I think that can be interpreted in a few ways. I think the most obvious interpretation is that he's um, dealing with a great deal of opposition in his efforts to bring about the word to the world because this generation will have the word through Joseph. Verse 19, admonish him in his faults and also receive admonition of him. Be patient, be sober, be temperate. Have patience, faith, hope, and charity. So here's a list of virtues, kind of like with section 4. The Doctrine and Covenant student manual says, through the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenant 6, the Lord assured Oliver Cowdery that Joseph Smith was his servant. Oliver learned that he had a duty to stand by or be loyal to and supportive of the Lord's servant and to patiently receive admonition or correction from him. In his close working association with the prophet, Oliver was also counseled by the Lord to admonish Joseph when needed. The prophet had human frailties and never claimed to be infallible. Near the end of his life, Joseph Smith declared, I never told you I was perfect, but there is no error in the revelations which I have taught. However, when describing the frailties of his youth, the prophet gave this insight into his character. No one need suppose me guilty of any greater malignant sins. A disposition to commit such was never in my nature. Elder D. Todd Christofferson observed, Joseph Smith was a mortal man striving to fulfill an overwhelming, divinely appointed mission against all odds. The wonder is not that he ever displayed human failings, but that he succeeded in his mission. His fruits are undeniable and undeniably good. So a beautiful statement there by Elder Christofferson and his reference to Joseph's fruits at the end of that quote are thought-provoking when we think of the Savior's words, that by their fruits you shall know them. Verse 20, Behold, thou art Oliver, and I have spoken unto thee because of thy desires. Therefore treasure up these words in thy heart. Be faithful and diligent in keeping the commandments of God, and I will encircle thee in the arms of my love. So there is love in this, and this very unique statement, Thou art Oliver, uh, is parallel, really, to the statement that we find in section 3, verse 9, when the Lord said, Thou art Joseph. And now that the Lord has identified Oliver in verse 20, he identifies himself in verse 21. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I am the same that came into my own, and mine own received me not. I am the light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not.
It's a beautiful description there that the Savior provides of himself. And we can think of the way that he describes himself or introduces himself to the Nephites in 3 Nephi chapter 11. Smith and Sojal have written, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the source of these revelations. He is the Word as well as the Redeemer of the world. He is the light which shineth in darkness, not which shone formerly, but which now shineth. The darkness is that condition of the world which is unaffected by the light of divine revelation because of the ignorance, superstition, and enmity of men. In that condition, the world does not comprehend the light of revelation. That kind of darkness remains apart, unyielding, unpenetrated, now as in the day when John wrote his gospel. Verse 22, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If you desire a further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart that you might know concerning the truth of these things. Now, Robinson and Garrett provide a quick refresher on this incident that the Lord is referencing. They say Joseph Smith later related what Oliver had told him after Doctrine and Covenants section 6 was received. He said, and this can be found in Jensen's book called Three Witnesses, After we had received this revelation, Oliver Cowdery stated to me that after he had gone to my father's to board, and after the family had communicated to him concerning my having obtained the plates, that one night after he retired to bed, he called upon the Lord to know if these things were so. And the Lord manifested to him that they were true, but he had kept the circumstance entirely secret and had mentioned it to no one, so that after this revelation was given, he knew that the work was true, because no living being knew of the thing alluded to in the revelation, but to God and himself." Oliver had also informed his close friend David Whitmer of the remarkable witness he had received. According to Whitmer, Oliver, quote, wrote me that Joseph had told him his secret thoughts, meaning Oliver's secret thoughts, and all he had meditated about going to see him, which no man on earth knew, as he supposed, but himself. And so he stopped at Harmony to write for Joseph. Now the Lord continues in verse 23, Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? And now, behold, you have received a witness. For if I have told you things which no man knoweth, have you not received a witness? Well, of course, this concept is something for us to apply to ourselves. Elder Richard G. Scott has talked about the way in which we can receive a witness. He has said the feeling of peace is the most common confirming witness that I personally experience. When I have been very concerned about an important matter, struggling to resolve it without success, I continue these efforts in faith. Later, an all-pervading peace has come, settling my concerns as he has promised. Verse 25, And behold, I grant unto you a gift, if you desire of me, to translate, even as my servant Joseph. Daniel Ludlow has written, This revelation was received during the same month that Oliver Cowdery first started to serve as scribe for Joseph Smith in the translation of the Book of Mormon. As Oliver Cowdery witnessed the gift of translation being manifested through Joseph, it would seem only natural that he would wonder about the gift and desire it for himself. Here, the Lord counsels Oliver to be patient and faithful to the opportunities that had been given to him so that additional power could be given to him later to assist in bringing to light those scriptures or parts of scriptures that were then not available to the peoples of the earth. This reference evidently refers both to the Book of Mormon and to Joseph Smith's inspired version of the Bible. Verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you that there are records which contain much of my gospel, 
which have been kept back because of the wickedness of the people. Susan Black writes about this phrase. The phrase, contain much of my gospel, which have been kept back, is a reference to missing accounts in the Bible. Scholars Hiram M. Smith and Jane M. Soljal extend the phrase by stating, quote, a great many records have been kept since the beginning of history, which are now hidden. To man, those records are lost, but to God they are only hidden, and he can bring their contents to light. In the summer of 1830, Joseph began working on an inspired revision of the Bible with the intent of bringing to the forefront the missing accounts. As he commenced to translate the words of Moses, which were given to Moses when he was caught up into a high mountain where he talked with the Lord face to face, a vision of Moses was presented to him. His dictation of what he saw in vision is found in the book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. Robinson and Garrett have written, with respect to this phrase, records kept back. Portions of the Book of Mormon itself have been kept back. Other such records would also include parts of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, the Book of Moses, uh, which was revealed in June of 1830 through February of 1831, and also the Book of Abraham. Undoubtedly, there are other records still waiting to be brought forward. Joseph Fielding Smith has written on this same subject in his book, Church History and Modern Revelation. It was in the summer of the year 1830 that the Lord called on Joseph Smith to commence his correction of the Bible. In June, the word of the Lord came to him that other scripture, in addition to the Book of Mormon, was to be given. This was according to the promise made to Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith, as given in section 6, verses 25 through 27, in April of 1829. In June of 1830, the prophet commenced to translate the words of Moses, which were given to Moses when he was caught up into a high mountain, where he talked with the Lord face to face. This vision of Moses is one of the most remarkable revelations given in this dispensation. It is published in the Pearl of Great Price. Verse 27, And now I command you that if you have good desires, a desire to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, then shall you assist in bringing to light with your gift those parts of my scriptures which have been hidden because of iniquity. So what a role here that Oliver Cowdery will play in the coming forth of scripture. Really staggering to consider. Well, Susan Easton Black has asked, how long after meeting Joseph Smith did Oliver Cowdery agree to be the principal scribe for the Book of Mormon? She writes, upon learning of Joseph Smith and the Golden Plates, Oliver Cowdery wrote, the subject seems working in my very bones and I cannot for a moment get it out of my mind. If there is a work for me to do in this thing, I am determined to attend to it. Accordingly, Oliver journeyed with Joseph Smith's brother Samuel Smith to Harmony, Pennsylvania, to meet the young prophet. On the fifth day of April of 1829, Oliver Cowdery came into my house, until which time I had never seen him, wrote Joseph. He stated to me that having been teaching school in the neighborhood where my father resided, and my father being one of those who sent to the school, He went to board for a season at his house, and while there the family related to him the circumstances of my having received the plates. His visit proved providential, for Joseph had called upon the Lord three days prior to the arrival of Oliver to send him a scribe according to the promise of the angel, and he was informed that the same should be forthcoming in a few days. Joseph wrote, Two days after the arrival of Mr. Cowdery, being the 7th of April, I commenced to translate the Book of Mormon, and he began to write for me. Susan Black continues, The number of revelations recorded or written by Oliver Cowdery may never be known, since many of the earliest copies of the revelations are missing. 
Oliver was probably the scribe for most of the early revelations received between 1829 and 1831, including sections 6 through 9, 11 through 12, 14 through 18, 20 through 24, 26, 28 through 32, and the early Missouri revelations, including sections 57 through 62 and 63 through 70. He also wrote a portion of the minutes of a February 17, 1834 meeting of the High Council in Kirtland. And we can read about that in section 102. Well, now we move into the final portion of this section as we come into verse 28. And the subheading for this is, Look unto Christ and do good continually. So verse 28, And now, behold, I give unto you and also unto my servant Joseph the keys of this gift, which shall bring to light this ministry, and in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So keys of this gift is a very interesting phrase that's used here. We know of priesthood keys and wonder if there's some relationship in the use of this term here. And also uh, shall bring to light this ministry. Uh, Really something to think about there. Let's focus in on the concept of witnesses for a moment, however. There's lots of commentary available on this. Uh, When the Lord says, "...in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established." First of all, let's talk about the two witnesses that are comprised of Oliver and Joseph. Uh, first, this from the Doctrine and Covenant student manual. A second gift promised to Oliver Cowdery was the gift and keys of translation. The Lord explained that the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver would become two witnesses who could testify that his words had been brought to light. It is significant that Joseph had Oliver at his side as a witness when other important events of the Restoration occurred. For example, Oliver participated in the following, the translation of the Book of Mormon and its publication, the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood through John the Baptist, the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood through Peter, James, and John, the organization of the church with two elders to lead it, the restoration of priesthood keys through Moses, Elias, and Elijah. Robinson and Garrett have written, Oliver was to be a second witness of the restoration, Joseph Smith being the first witness, Oliver was involved with every major restoration event, the translation of the Book of Mormon, the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood, the restoration of the Melchizedek Priesthood, and the restoration of the Priesthood Keys in the Kirtland Temple. It would be Oliver's duty and right to bear witness of these events. Joseph would no longer stand alone. John A. Widso has written, Oliver Cowdery, whose reputation for honesty has never been questioned, was with Joseph Smith when John the Baptist came to restore the authority of the Aaronic Priesthood and when Peter, James, and John appeared to restore the Melchizedek priesthood, and also when the foundation-laying revelations from spiritual beings given at the time of the dedication of the Kirtland Temple were received. Of all these joint experiences, Oliver Cowdery often bore testimony. Sidney Rigdon, who was with Joseph Smith when the revelation called the Vision was received, bore testimony in diverse places to the glimpse at that time with Joseph Smith of heavenly personages, including the Lord himself. As we continue here to consider the concept or the law of witnesses, let's talk for a moment about the three witnesses. Uh, Susan Black asks, what circumstances led to Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris to being chosen to be the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon? And She recounts this here. In June of 1829, within the small confines of the Peter Whitmer Senior Home, the Smiths, the Whitmers, Oliver Cowdery, and Martin Harris read passages from the completed Book of Mormon manuscript and rejoiced exceedingly. They spoke of the witnesses who were to testify of the truthfulness of the gold plates, and wondered aloud who would be chosen. 
Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris asked Joseph to inquire of the Lord if they might be privileged to be the designated witnesses. Joseph Smith wrote, They became so very solicitous and urged me so much to inquire that at length I complied, and through the Urim and Thummim received an answer. In addition to your testimony, the testimony of three of my servants, whom I shall call and ordain unto them, will I show these things, and they shall go forth with my words that are given through you. That's section 5, verse 11. The next morning, worship services, namely reading, singing, and praying, took place in the Whitmer home. During the services, Joseph said, Martin Harris, you have got to humble yourself before your God this day, that you may obtain a forgiveness of your sins. If you do, it is the will of God that you should look upon the plates in company with Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer. So as to why it was that Martin was singled out on this occasion and why he was not with Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer when they were shown the plates by an angel, Susan Black has written this, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery brought David Whitmer from the field where he was plowing and in company with Martin Harris ventured into a nearby piece of woods to try and obtain by fervent and humble prayer the fulfillment of the promises given, that of viewing the plates. After kneeling down, according to previous arrangements, Joseph prayed vocally. He was followed by each of the rest in succession, yet they did not receive a manifestation of the divine favor. Believing it still possible to receive the desired answer, they again observed the same order of prayer, each calling on and praying fervently to God in rotation. The result was as before. After the second failure, Martin proposed that he would withdraw himself from us, believing, as he expressed himself, that his presence was the cause of our not obtaining what we wished for. Accordingly, he walked away from the others. Joseph, Oliver, and David then knelt down again and had not been many minutes engaged in prayer when an angel appeared and showed them the plates. There were now two witnesses of the Book of Mormon, but what of the third? Joseph wrote of his desire for Martin to be a witness. Quote, I now left David and Oliver and went in pursuit of Martin Harris, whom I found at a considerable distance, fervently engaged in prayer. He soon told me, however, that he had not yet prevailed with the Lord and earnestly requested me to join him in prayer that he also might realize the same blessings which we had just received. We accordingly joined in prayer and ultimately obtained our desires, for before we had yet finished, the same vision was opened to our view. At least it was again opened to me, and I once more beheld and heard the same things, whilst at the same moment Martin Harris cried out apparently in an ecstasy of joy, "'Tis enough, tis enough, mine eyes have beheld, mine eyes have beheld, and jumping up he shouted, Hosanna, blessing God, and otherwise rejoiced exceedingly. So this account reminds us that Joseph was a party to the vision received uh, by David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery, and then later was a party to the vision that Martin Harris received. So quite interesting to notice that. As they were becoming witnesses to him and his heavenly visions and the plates, he was a witness to the one that they were receiving. Well, since we're engaged in this aside about the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and it's coming out of this statement from verse 28, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses my word will be established, let's look at the eight witnesses as well and differentiate between their experience and the experience of the three. Susan Black helps us with that as well. She says, The three witnesses were shown in vision the plates by an angel in Fayette, New York. The eight witnesses were shown the plates by Joseph Smith near the Joseph Smith Sr. log home in Manchester, New York. The eight witnesses handled the plates and observed the engravings thereon. Their testimony appears in each copy of the Book of Mormon. It says Joseph Smith Jr., the translator of this work, 
has shown unto us the plates of which have been spoken, which have the appearance of gold, and as many of the leaves as the said smith has translated, we did handle with our hands. And we also saw the engravings thereon, all of which has the appearance of ancient work and of curious workmanship, and this we bear record with words of soberness. Well, now returning to the text, verse 29, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if they reject my words, now this is after witnesses have been established, and this part of my gospel and ministry, blessed are ye, for they can do no more unto you than unto me. And even if they do unto you as they have done unto me, and remember that in the previous section there was kind of an intimation there as well that Joseph could suffer martyrdom. Blessed are ye, for ye shall dwell with me in glory. To that point, Robertson and Garrett have written, Perhaps these verses foreshadow the 1844 martyrdom, as does Doctrine and Covenants section 5, verse 22. If so, it might have been Oliver rather than Hiram Smith who died with the prophet at Carthage, had Oliver not left the church by that time. So, a very interesting thing to consider by Robertson and Garrett. And, of course, we read earlier, uh, as we learned about Oliver Cowdery's kind of his biography, that uh, Hiram Smith did later replace Oliver once he left the church after that Kirtland period. Verse 31, now this follows the same pattern as so many other passages of Scripture where two pathways are laid out for those who receive the word of God. They can go in one way or another depending on their acceptance or rejection of his word. So verse 31 says, But if they reject not my words, which shall be established by the testimony which shall be given, blessed are they, and then shall ye have joy in the fruit of your labors. Verily, verily, I say unto you, as I said unto my disciples, where two or three are gathered together in my name, as touching one thing, behold, there will I be in the midst of them. Even so am I in the midst of you. This concept of the Savior being in our midst is something that he spoke of in Third Nephi, and it's something that we'll read of in later sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, particularly section 38. It seems reasonable to us, I think, when we read these scriptural accounts in Third Nephi and here that the Lord was in the midst of these disciples uh, because he actually appeared among them. But his point seems to go beyond those boundaries when he talks about being in the midst of his disciples. Uh, If we go back and look at these verses, he says very specifically that where two or three are gathered together in my name as touching one thing, behold, there will I be in the midst of them. Then he reverts to the present tense and says, even so I am in the midst of you. This suggests very strongly to us that there are times when the Lord is in our midst. I think it can be hard to fully take the meaning in of that statement when he says it, but my sense in reading these passages is that he means this more literally than we might think. And we can think of the time when the Savior walked with the men on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his companion. He was in their midst in that moment, and yet their eyes were holden is the verbiage that's provided there. I think it's in Luke 22. So that they didn't realize who it was that was walking with them. It would seem to me then that in order for the veil to keep its integrity, that there could be times when the Savior is in our midst, but our eyes are holden in a similar manner. I don't mean to be sensational in making this point and would hasten to add that the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost that is our privilege and blessing to have as a result of being confirmed after baptism and receiving the baptism of fire is already an utterly remarkable concept that is akin to this idea of having the Lord being in our midst. 
Well, now to move into these beautiful final verses, verse 33, fear not to do good, my sons. So now here the Lord is addressing not just Oliver, but also Joseph. Seems to be talking to them both. For whatsoever ye sow, that shall ye also reap. Therefore, if ye sow good, ye shall also reap good for your reward. Well, we know that this can be described as the law of the harvest and that it's typical that when a seed is planted that the uh, effects of that planting uh, are not seen until a season later or sometime later after that seed has had a chance to sprout and to grow. So Oliver and Joseph here are planting seeds and remember the word is likened unto a seed uh, in other occasions in the scriptures. So here the law of the harvest is being applied and they are planting the seeds of translating the Book of Mormon and, of course, of recording these revelations, and then they'll do work on the Bible. Uh, So they're planting these seeds in the earth that will bear fruit that they can scarcely even conceive of. Uh, The Book of Mormon has truly flooded the earth. In fact, Elder Gong's most recent conference talk uh, gives several numbers uh, with that. I don't remember all the numbers that he gives, but he talks about how many copies of the Book of Mormon have been published since that period of time. It's really staggering. So it's an amazing and important work that Joseph and Oliver are engaged in as they're in this little house in Harmony, Pennsylvania, in this uh, obscure place doing this thing. Uh, the, the ramifications of their decisions to follow the Lord's will are almost incalculable, really. And of course, lots of opposition accompanied that enterprise. And so this statement in verse 34 brings great comfort. Therefore, fear not, little flock, do good. And so interesting that the Savior uses the phrase little flock. Uh, Do good. Let earth and hell combine against you, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Well, the the verb combine is thought-provoking when we think after having just finished the Book of Mormon of secret combinations, same root word. That certainly is one of the ways in which earth and hell combines against the work of the Lord. Those assaults, in fact, will be so formidable that it is only those who are built upon the rock of our Redeemer that will stand it, that will prevail. Daniel Ludlow has an entry in his Companion to Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants in the appendix. Uh, The entry is called Rock, or Rock of Heaven. It says the word rock is used by the Savior on several occasions to refer to himself or the gospel or to a principle of the gospel. In all of these uses... The word evokes the image of stability, dependability, strength, and permanence, which should be associated with Jesus Christ and his teachings. The title Stone of Israel, which we'll find in Doctrine and Covenants section 50, verse 44, is used in much the same sense in referring to the Savior. Perhaps the most frequently quoted scripture containing the word rock is Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 18. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So interesting there, some intertextuality, no doubt, how the Lord says, thou art Peter. And then in this section he says, thou art Oliver. And of course in section uh, three says, thou art Joseph. Unfortunately, Ludlow continues, the meaning of the word rock in this scripture has been interpreted in different ways by various religious groups. Some have mentioned that the antecedent is Peter, while others have felt it referred to the principle of revelation. 
The Lord uses the same term in several of his Latter-day Revelations, and it is abundantly clear that he is speaking of the gospel or of a principle of the gospel, which is revelation, rather than of the man Peter. When the term is used to refer to a person, it usually refers to Jesus Christ. The prophet Joseph Smith explained the meaning of the word. Jesus says, Upon his rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What rock? Revelation. So some great thoughts there on this verse. Um, This phrase, they cannot prevail, can bring, I think, so much comfort to all those who feel like they're engaged in the work of the Lord and that they are a little outnumbered flock compared to the forces that combine around them. They cannot prevail. Here's a quote from John A. Widsow that's provided in Daniel Ludlow's book. He says, I remember reading when a boy, a helpful passage from the Doctrine and Covenants. Let me read it here. As a lad, I felt fear, sometimes of men, but more often of the dark outside forces. I often wondered if this persecuted people, after all, would be able to accomplish all that was pictured in its destiny. Then I found in my reading of the Doctrine and Covenants this passage, which has been a joy and a help and a strength to me all my life. For the Lord said to his people in Harmony, Pennsylvania, before the church was organized, and then he quotes these verses that we've just read, That include, of course, fear not to do good, little flock, and uh, they cannot prevail. What do we care for the slanderer or the liar? What do we care for the enemy who arises to defeat our holy purposes? We have the truth, the mightiest weapon God has given to his people, and we shall win in the end if we do the things that God requires us to do. Verse 35, Behold, I do not condemn you. Now here we might think, condemn you for what? And I'm not sure exactly what the context is here for the Lord saying, I do not condemn you, but perhaps it's for um, kind of the mild tone of rebuke, if we want to put it that way, that is contained in the Lord's reminder to Oliver that he already had been given a great witness from God, that he simply needed to recall that witness and to trust that it is still in effect and that he is indeed being led along by the Lord. Maybe that's the sense in which the Lord is saying, I do not condemn you. In any event, he then says in verse 35, go your ways, ways plural, and sin no more. Perform with soberness the work which I have commanded you. Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. I think as disciples of the Lord, we cross an important threshold in our discipleship when we realize that we are accountable for our thoughts We are accountable for our words and that our thoughts and um, often our feelings that are generated by our thoughts and by stories that we construct uh, often come to us as a result of the exercise of our own agency. And so the Lord is saying here, look unto me in every thought. And so that suggests then that that's something that we have some modicum of control over. Then to doubt not and to fear not and to have doubt and fear, which is something that seems really to come to us passively, but instead it's an injunction for us to not doubt and to not fear is quite interesting, I think, and is tied, I believe, to the exercise of faith, which is an action of will and an action of the mind in in many ways. There's an interesting phrase in um, Alma chapter 7, when Alma is speaking to the people of Gideon. He lists several Christ-like attributes in that sermon, but then says, and see that ye have faith, hope, and charity. There's this idea then that some of these things don't just distill upon us. Uh, They are gifts that do come from God, and they do come from him according to his own timeline, and we can't be so formulaic that we 
automatically expect the receipt of his gifts and his blessings uh, as though he's um, kind of a divine vending machine. Um, he controls the timing of this. But in any event, it is possible for us to seek after faith, hope, and charity. And so it is, I think, as well, in this case, that we can, to some degree, have control over our own doubts and fears, and the key to doing that seems to be to look unto the Savior in every thought. Well, that certainly is a covenant action as well. It's related to the promise that we make to always remember him, uh, it, that, that injunction that's given in the sacrament prayer. We learn in Third Nephi chapter 18 that by so doing, we can have his Spirit to be with us. And so uh, there's a relationship between having the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost and between looking unto the Savior with every thought and doubting not and fearing not. Richard L. Evans once wrote in a 1961 conference report, Keep courage. Do not feel sorry for yourselves. Whatever you do, do not feel sorry for yourselves. You live in a great age of opportunity. I remember the words of one very sharp and shrewd observer who said, Whenever I hear someone sigh and say that life is hard, I am tempted to ask, compared to what? What are the alternatives? No one ever promised us it would be easy. It is a schooling. It is an opportunity. It is a learning period and a wonderful one. Despite all the disappointments and difficulties, the great and ultimate rewards are beyond price. Now for this final verse in the section, verse 37. Behold the wounds which pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Amen. It's quite uh, enlightening, I think, that the Savior would mention his wounds after telling Oliver and Joseph at this point to look unto him in every thought and to doubt not and fear not. When they consider their own hardships and travails in bringing the word forward and in restoring the early church, and of course when we think of our own hardships and travails, uh, as Richard L. Evans has described them so eloquently, we can realize that no one knows hardships and travails as well as he who has descended below all things and who still bears those particular wounds, or at least the marks thereof. I said, I think, a couple episodes ago that it, it would seem to me that the Savior is the only one who comes from this world who actually is meant to keep these identifying wounds uh, he is the great healer and can heal all the rest of us of all our wounds. And I think his wounds are a reminder of that. As we read this, and the Savior says, Behold the wounds which pierced my side, it could have a few meanings as we consider what it could mean with reference to Oliver Cowdery's own experience. Here's some commentary on this. Uh, the student manual says it is not known whether Doctrine and Covenants section 6 verse 37 refers to a literal or to a figurative experience. The Lord may have simply been reminding Oliver of an experience he had had earlier when he first heard about the prophet Joseph Smith and the golden plates. So I think that seems very likely. Daniel Ludlow says the reminder of the Savior to behold the wounds which have pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet is evidently meant here in a figurative sense only. There is no indication that the Savior actually physically showed himself to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery on this occasion. Rather, he is reminding them to be faithful in their callings, as was evident by the marks of the crucifixion. Robinson and Garrett concur with what Ludlow is saying. 
They say that this may just be figurative language in joining Oliver simply to consider or think about the sacrifice of the Savior as described in Scripture. Oliver's vision sometime in 1828 or 1829, however, uh, the vision that preceded uh, Oliver's visit to Harmony, may suggest that a more literal reminiscence could be involved. Well, of course, whatever the case may be with Oliver, we personally can think of his wounds. Elder Holland once spoke in our sacrament meeting in Midway, Utah, and spoke of the way in which he still bears those scars, and talked about how this is to remind us as we partake of the sacrament of a broken man, and that he was broken so that we may be made whole. And, of course, Elder Holland has spoken on other occasions in General Conference about broken things to mend. And there is an irony involved in that, and it's a beautiful, poetic irony that this broken man is the one who has the capacity to mend all other broken things and to heal all who are wounded. Well, we have much more to look forward to as we look forward to Doctrine and Covenants, Section 7. Then as we return to Sections 8 and 9, uh, Oliver Cowdery will figure prominently into the historical background of those sections as well. So we have all of that to look forward to. For now, this brings us to the end of Doctrine and Covenants, Section 6. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive, the Doctrine and Covenants edition. If this podcast has benefited you, please continue to share it with your family and friends. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me to prepare for this episode. They include Leon G. Otten and Max C. Caldwell's two-volume work called Sacred Truths of the Doctrine and Covenants. Stephen C. Harper's Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Doctrine and Covenants Student Manual, which is used for Religion 324 and 325 by the Church Educational System, Stephen E. Robinson and H. Dean Garrett's A Commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants plays a prominent role in this podcast. Other valuable commentary has come from Susan Easton Black in her book 400 Questions and Answers about the Doctrine and Covenants. I also want to acknowledge the book by Daniel Ludlow called A Companion to Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants. And finally, valuable additional historical views have been offered from the book Saints, The Story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days, and from a book that is made available in the Church's Gospel Library called Joseph Smith's Revelations, A Doctrine and Covenants Study Companion from the Joseph Smith Papers. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as from time to time do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, and this year in particular in the Doctrine and Covenants, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, even the Lord Jesus Christ. I offer my personal witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day. Keep in touch. You can find me at barryhillam.com. And thank you for listening.